electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. And here's what's ahead this hour. The markets have put Monday's big sell-off firmly in the rearview mirror. We're about to close higher for the fourth straight week. The Dow could even close above 35,000 for the first time. We'll have picks for the next phase of this run. Plus, is Jay Powell's time as Fed chair coming to an end? We'll speak to a J.P. Morgan economist who says it's looking more and more likely that he won't get another term. How will markets feel about that? And it's a fun food Friday edition of Rapid Fire. Wall Street is cold on beer and pizza, hot on coffee. All that plus a shot of energy is coming up. But we begin with the markets and Christina Parts and Evelis has the numbers. Christina, what do you mean coming up? That energy shot is right here because U.S. equities <laughs> are trending higher this Friday morning. Well, afternoon, I should say. I wrote this just a little bit while ago. And the S&P 500 just hitting that all-time high not too long ago, 4,407. So we're not too far off. All major averages are up on the week following that major sell-off on Monday when concerns about the spread of the Delta variant did take hold. But let's take some of those uh, sectors right now. Take a look at those. Communication services, healthcare, as well as consumer staples trending all higher uh, for today. But much of that upwards trend this week is about the buy-the-dip kind of story, along with some strong company earnings reports that, you know, pretty much bode well for the near term. So far, 85% of those earnings that came out beat analyst forecasts for the second quarter. So many are paying attention to whether these companies Companies will succeed in passing on higher costs to consumers because then that would mean inflation will take longer to subside and that would prompt some concerns about higher interest rates and, of course, rattle some markets. But let's talk about exclusive clubs. Facebook is likely to rejoin the trillion-dollar club. The stock is up almost, oh, well above 6% right now, partially because of better-than-expected results from social media peer Snap. But also you have a, a morning report that came out from Credit Suisse. Uh, they raised their price target from 400 to 480 Back to you, Kim. You, Christina, you're the kind of person I feel like with the Kanye West line, like, I don't need drugs, I'm high on life. You know what I'm saying? I don't think you have monster energy. I don't energy. need drugs. Yeah. I don't need them at <laughs> don't, all. Don't need the five-hour energy. need uh, nothing. Just you <laughs> and our viewers and this job. Exactly. Christina Parts and Evelis, thank you very much. From down 900 to record highs, it's been a dizzying week for the Dow. Was the sell-off just a blip or a sign of more tumult to come? My next guest says things could be choppy for a few more weeks, but the bull market is intact. In fact, he's doubling down on the so-called value stocks for the rest of this run. Joining me now is Eli Saltzman, portfolio manager of the Newberger Berman Large Cap Value Fund. The Morningstar five-star fund is crushing the market this year, up 20% and 110% higher from the March 2020 lows. Eli, it's great to have you. So first of all, you're not too phased by these sort of Delta concerns, the, you know, the, the kinds of, whether it's you know, COVID or whatever, inflation, the, the things that sank the market on Monday don't bother you too much? You know, listen, the Delta is going to make it very choppy for the next four to six weeks. Uh, we're watching it closely. We have a lot of internal research people at Newberger uh, that spend a lot of time looking at it. Uh, but we believe on the other side of this, uh, it is going to be a very good market. So choppy for four to six weeks. And then you want to be very cyclical for the rest of the year. 
And when let's talk about cyclical a little bit. So there's been this sort of raging argument about value and growth. You're firmly in the value camp. In fact, you think a lot of the value investors have really drifted into growth stocks and some of the big cap tech names. So where do you think people should be specifically focused for the next couple of years? Sure, sure. Our biggest overweights in the portfolio by distance are financials, basic materials, industrials, and energy. These are sectors that we've been very overweight for the last year, and we believe that for the next six to eight months, you want to stay overweight those sectors. It'll be choppy for the next four to six, but after, those are the sectors you want to be in. Do you have to have rising interest rates in order to be positive on those sectors, you know, in, in order for those to be well-performing stocks? Yeah, that's a great question. The answer is it would help a lot. You know, <laughs> if we enter an environment where pricing is heading up, and we believe it is, uh, rates will also head up, the yield curve will steepen. And if the yield curve, which is about, call it 105 basis points today between the 2 and the 10, sees more like 150 or 160, that will be much more bullish for value than growth. And so we mentioned the financials, but your strategy is, you know, a stock picking strategy. So let's, if you don't mind, get a little bit more specific than that even. Truist Financial, Comerica, um, you have a lot of the big familiar holdings like J.P. Morgan, GE, Aon in here, but also a lot of energy names, even the IBM, Cisco, you know, Johnson & Johnson. Are these all different kinds of names that you think should continue to perform well? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, you know, putting the sector weights aside, you know, we are a bottom-up manager and we carefully go stock by stock and we, all the stocks you just named, we absolutely love all of them. That's a pretty, you know, you make it sound easy, Eli. You know, there's plenty of people who would sit here and say, I don't know, you know, you can, we can have a big raging debate about whether to own Facebook and Google and, you know, maybe some of the more emerging stocks. And there's the, you know, why do you stick with big blue chip names that, you know, you might think would be, you know, have performance that's a little bit more boring? Yeah. You know, listen, um, we're a value manager and the names you just listed all have incredibly good valuations with some amazing catalysts that are going to play out. And if the environment comes out like we believe it will over the next six to eight months, we're going to get paid on most, if not all of us. All right. Eli, it's been great having you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Eli Saltzman with Newberger Berman. We have some breaking news out of Washington. Let's move to Elon Moy, who has the details for us. Elon? Well, Kelly, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has now sent a letter to Congress warning that the nation will hit the debt limit on August the 1st. And she said that if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling by August the 2nd, the Treasury Department will have to resort to using extraordinary measures in order to pay the nation's bills. Now, Yellen did not say how long she thinks those extraordinary measures could last, but she did warn that failing to pay the nation's bills would cause irreparable harm to the U.S. economy and to the livelihoods of all Americans. Now, the CBO has previously projected that the extraordinary measures could last through October or November. Yellen said that there are scenarios where uh, the extraordinary measures could run out shortly after Congress returns from its August recess, but that this year, because of the pandemic and changes to payments and to receipts, it's especially difficult to project. Kelly, she did urge lawmakers to raise the debt ceiling in a bipartisan fashion. But again, 
Treasury will have to resort to using those extraordinary measures starting on August the 2nd. All Back right, Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy with the latest. Now, speaking of Janet Yellen and her former job, 2022 is going to be a big year for the Federal Reserve. It's when most expect tapering to begin, and it's also Chair Powell's last year at the helm. While most have assumed he'll stay in place for this key Fed transition, my next guest says his job is actually now at risk. With me now is Michael Faroli, the chief U.S. economist for J.P. Morgan. Mike, it's great to have you. I was surprised to see you put this out. What are you hearing? So I'm not hearing anything uh, in particular, but we are certainly hearing things publicly from uh, just this week from Senators uh, Sherrod Brown and Elizabeth Warren uh, stating their concerns about Powell uh, remaining in the job. Uh, again, I think everyone, uh, uh, almost everyone agrees that he's done an excellent job when it comes to monetary policy, when it comes to steering the economy through the pandemic. Uh, but there are certainly some Democrats on uh, the more progressive end of the party who uh, who have some concerns about Powell being a Republican and having oversight of the Fed's uh, regulatory and, and supervisory uh, responsibilities. So I think it's very much up in the air. I, I personally, I think he's, as I said, I think he's done a great job, uh, but I don't think it's a, he's a lock for getting a second term. And I, it's not because of monetary policy. It's because of, I think, because of regulatory policy. Why do you, so, you know, we often hear concerns, especially from, you know, um, each side of the aisle, whether the more vocal group. So in, the, in this case, you're talking about the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Fine. Um, but why does that have so much weight and bearing on his likelihood to stay in the job? Why shouldn't we dismiss that as the kind of noise we always hear around these transition points? Well, again, that, I think this is a pretty uncertain point. And there are not only progressives uh, in the Senate, but there, I think there are some progressives within the, within the administration who uh, again, may may have the president's ear. Uh, I believe that, as you said, uh, Secretary Yellen probably, hopefully, supports Powell. They certainly work together well, uh, but she won't be the only voice in the administration. Uh, and I would also point out uh, in in this whole uh, issue that there are a couple of governors uh, on the Federal Reserve Board whose terms uh, could be coming up pretty soon. So that may also uh, influence. Uh, the decision on Powell, because if uh, Biden is assured that he has a majority of Democrats on the board, he might be a little more comfortable having Powell as the chair, uh, provided those Democrats would push forward the uh, uh, the regulatory agenda that would presumably the administration would support. So I do think there's a lot of moving parts here when it comes to the Fed. Uh, uh, and the Fed leadership for next year. If I were to think through this in a purely utilitarian way, it, it seems like it has to be dovish because a woke Fed, so to speak, whether it's just the chair or other board members or even a Powell who's simply aware of this dynamic and maybe wants to stay in the job, wouldn't all of that lean dovish and, and be you know, more or less bullish for the markets unless there is a real inflation concern? I, I think that's right. Uh, so Powell has definitely pushed, uh, pushed the Fed, I think, in the dovish direction. Powell and his vice chair, Clarita, uh, the framework review has been one that has tolerated higher inflation, as you mentioned, sought a more inclusive definition of full employment. Uh, and so it is, it's a dovish Fed. And, uh, you know, some of the contenders that are being you know, thought, thought about or named for potential replacements for Powell would also be dovish. But uh, either way, I think policy is going to remain uh, pretty accommodative, pretty growth friendly. And so I think the market should uh, I believe, like whoever's in there and, and certainly would like for Powell to have another term. But I think any replacement would probably uh, lean toward, you know, really fostering uh, growth and fostering full employment. Is there a, 
sort of a legitimacy or an independence issue here as well if it's somebody who is seen as tighter with the administration or more supportive of a political policy and all of that kind of thing? And I mean, ironically, if we go back for years now, the Fed's quote unquote goal has been to raise inflation expectations. Something like this could certainly do it. So you could argue it's pursuing sort of an institutional goal or you could argue that it might risk, you know, furthering the concerns that a lot of people already have about the Fed, both on the inflation side of the equation and also the political one. So I wouldn't really worry about the Fed's independence at this point. Uh, in part, the structure uh, with overlapping terms uh, means that the president will, you know, he'll, he'll appoint his, his preferred chair, whether that's Powell or somebody else, but he won't get to appoint the full board. And certainly uh, he won't be able to appoint uh, the regional uh, Federal Reserve Bank president. So there's enough, I think, institutional uh, structure there that will prevent um, you know, this president or really any president from overly politicizing uh, the Fed. And I think whether it's Powell or some of the other uh, potential replacements who have been considered, uh, Governor Lael Brainerd is uh, considered a front runner if it's not Powell. I think she also respects the institution and wouldn't bend it to, uh, to the political will of, of this or any administration. Very, very interesting. Mike, appreciate you joining us today to explain it all. Thanks. Mike Faroli is the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. Still ahead, investors are snapping up single-family rental properties as home prices rise to record levels. We're going to speak with the CEO of an online real estate marketplace about who's buying what and where. That's next. Plus, lawmakers from coast to coast are looking for creative ways to help their high-earning homeowners avoid the so-called salt cap. We're going to look at some creative ways states are trying to sidestep it. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back. Rising prices, passive income yields, and inflation protection have all prompted hordes of new real estate investors into the market. As a result, demand for single-family properties that can be rented out is surging. My next guest runs Roofstock, an online real estate marketplace targeting single-family rentals. Roofstock essentially brings together buyers and sellers of investment properties. Since launching in 2016, they've surpassed $3 billion in transactions. Here now to talk about whether increased investor demand is crowding out other home buyers is Gary Beasley. He's the CEO and co-founder of Roofstock. Gary, thanks for joining me. I, I'm sure you've heard this concern. Is it intensifying out there? Well, there's always been a lot of investor interest in the asset class. Uh, historically, it had been more mom and pop driven. Today, there's about 20 or 21 percent of the of the homes today are purchased by investors. 
but the vast majority of those are small investors. I would I would say, you know, perhaps um, ninety sort of ninety thousand homes a month purchased by investors. Maybe four thousand of those are by by larger investors. The majority being uh, mom and pops. And that's similar to what we heard when we spoke with uh, Coldwell Banker about this phenomenon as well, asking if they're seeing investor demand crowding out other demand. And they said, you know, maybe, you know, a little bit on the margins. Why do you think, though, this has become such a, uh, you know, I hear about this issue all the time. It's really one that has divided communities and raises a lot of rancor. Uh, talk to me about how you see the politics of this evolving. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I think it, there's always a challenges when there's a lot of private capital flowing in, uh, crowding out, you know, potentially crowding out smaller investors. It's just not necessarily backed up by the facts. I think if you look back, the same thing happened during the, the last financial crisis when arguably there was more institutional capital flowing in. And I would argue it actually put a bottom on housing prices, and, it's, and prices have turned around since the beginning of 2012 when that capital really started to flow in. But there was a similar narrative back then that there was all this Wall Street money flowing in. But the reality was it did provide a bottom to the market. It provided much needed capital. And there's an awful lot of good that comes from capital be, being reinvested in older housing stock that could be either for sale or for rent. And the reality is we're, we have a real, real shortage of housing around the country, both you know, new built and existing stock, several million units. And I think anything you could do to get investors, large and small, to reinvest in those homes and create affordable housing that's of high quality uh, is generally a positive thing. Sure. I'm curious as well about, you know, the kinds of yields that real estate is generating with home prices where they are. Um, what's that dynamic look like? You know, how attractive is the yield uh, as, a, as a landlord? Well, uh, rental yields vary by price point. The Generally, the higher the price point of the home, the lower the yield. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you see the, the, the types of homes that are on our marketplace, um, the, the yield, uh, I would say, ranges about 5% on average unlevered. Um, and so um, when you put some leverage on that and get some home price appreciation, what you see is um, uh, a total return profile being quite good. So Yields have probably compressed 50 to 100 basis points in the last year. But the total returns have been similar or better because of home price appreciation. Sure. Although, again, I wonder if that's one of those things where the dynamics look fine in a rising price market. But then all of a sudden, you know, especially like you said with leverage, I'm assuming you mean like if you use a mortgage or something like that, you know, falling home mm -hmm. prices then can make both of those dynamics work against you. So the fact that we've seen such uplift over the past year, especially I wonder if that just is moving some people to the sidelines who might have been all in on this strategy in 2016 and enjoyed pretty good returns and are just thinking now maybe it's looking a little peaky. Uh, it's funny. People have been going onto the sidelines for every year since I've been in the industry and <laughs> for, for the most part, always regretted it because it's hard to call the top. Um, rents are also increasing. So um, and interest rates, while they're likely to creep up here over time, there doesn't appear to be a catalyst for any sort of dramatic increase in rates. So I think well, I just came back from a conference in Miami, and it's the more the most optimistic, uh, I, I think, outlook I've seen in the sector in a decade. And this was both large and small investors looking at everything in totality. And I think part of it, too, is single family homes relative to all the other real estate asset classes has some very attractive 
supply demand characteristics. So part of it is that it's it's just on a relative and absolute basis, I think, quite attractive right now. Yeah, no, I hear about it all the time uh, as well. I think that's partly my curiosity is, is it, you know, become too widespread? Um, but I guess just a quick final question. We are talking about people who are buying properties largely within a pretty close driving radius of where they currently live. Or does this reach across state lines? Yeah, that's the beauty of the, the technology that, that Roofstock and others has brought to bear. You can buy homes all over the country really from anywhere in the world without actually leaving your home. So we break down those geographic barriers. Yeah. It allows investors to get away from that buying just an hour outside of their homes to really buying everywhere, which is a much better, I think, diversification strategy. That's fascinating. Gary, thanks. We appreciate it today. Gary Beasley of Roofstock joining me. Coming up, talk about a wicked bad quarter. Shares of this beverage maker are on pace for their worst day since 2007 after missing earnings estimates. We'll show you what went wrong. And as we had to break, take a look at the Dow components going the other way and hitting all-time highs today with the index, trying for its first ever close above 35,000. American Express is up there. We're back in a moment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back, everybody. We're near session highs on the markets. The Dow's up 246 points, just about 20 points off the 264 high so far. It's the underperformer up three-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq and S&P are up more than 1% today. And on the move today are also the home builders. In the green with the home construction ETF, the ITB, on pace for its best week since early May. Again, falling interest rates do tend to have that effect. Look at Green Brick. It's up 5%. MDC up 3.5%. 3.6 for DR Horton. TriPoint up 5%. And the home ETF overall up about 2.5%. And take a look at what's going on with lumber. Just as we've talked about this massive $1,000 slump this year, it's up more than 20% this week since Monday and on pace to break an eight-week losing streak. Remember, as of last week, we had given up all the gains for the year and turned negative year to date. Prices are still down more than $1,000 from their May peak of more than $1,700. But this rebound just in the last several days is worth watching. Let's get to Frank Holland now for a CNBC News update. Frank? Hi there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. China imposing counter sanctions on some Americans, including former Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. This following U.S. sanctions against Chinese officials involved in Hong Kong crackdowns. These latest measures coming just days before the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State is set to visit China. Moderna's COVID vaccine getting a key endorsement from European regulators that could make it only the second shot approved for 12 to 17 year olds. The vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech is currently the only one approved by Europe and the U.S. for adolescents. And in California, a close call for firefighters battling the Tamarack wildfire, literally driving through sparks and flames near the border with Nevada. The Tamarack blaze has now burned more than 58,000 acres and remains just 4% contained. On the news later tonight, the latest on all the wildfires blackening California and hard-won progress against the bootleg fire in Oregon. That's tonight at 7 Eastern and Kelly. I'll be filling in for Chef. All right, Frank, we'll see you then. Frank Holland. Domino's gets chewed up, Starbucks spending jolt, and Monster's energized stock price. It's all coming up in our food edition of Rapid Fire today. But first, it's Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for markets next week. Here's your Friday Fast Forward. 
Reports, rates, and Robinhood are the key themes next week. The busiest week of earnings season kicks off with results from Tesla after the bell. Alphabet, Apple, Microsoft, Visa, and Starbucks are just a few of the names reporting on Tuesday. Wednesday brings results from Facebook, PayPal, Ford, Pfizer, McDonald's, and Boeing. Amazon reports Thursday, and the week closes out with two big energy names, Chevron and Exxon. The Fed meeting kicks off Tuesday with an interest rate decision on Wednesday. Investors will be listening closely for any change in inflation sentiment and talk of tapering. And it's one of the most highly anticipated IPOs this year. Trading app Robinhood debuts Thursday on the NASDAQ. Robinhood sees a price somewhere between $38 and $42 per Class A share, giving it a $35 billion valuation at the high end. The company is setting aside as much as 35% of its shares for retail investors. Plus, we'll get reads on the housing market with new home sales, the Case-Shiller Price Index, and pending home sales for the month of June. That's your Friday Fast Forward. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It's a special food-themed edition of Rapid Fire this Friday, where Wall Street is cold on beer and pizza and hot on coffee and energy drinks. And here to help break down the headlines are CNBC's Bob Bassani and Kate Rogers, along with Michael Yoshikami, the founder and CEO of Destination Wealth Management. Welcome to all of you. First up, is it too good to be true? Domino's reported a massive quarter yesterday with sales up 3% from 2020 and nearly 20% higher from the second quarter of 2019, that's pre-pandemic, the shares hit an all-time high. They spiked nearly 12% on that report yesterday. But J.P. Morgan is now downgrading the stock to neutral, citing valuation concerns and writing that, quote, it might be time to lock in profits here. But, Bob, the stock has been such a monster performer that, you know, it's like on any other name, it might seem like an obvious move. But with Domino's, they've just executed so well over the past decade. For once, I agree with an analyst. This makes complete sense <laughs> to me. This is the, the ultimate peak everything story. The stock's up 65% since the pandemic. That 15, 16 months ago, 65%. How much pizza can you possibly sell? If you look at the metrics here, it's pricey. 32 times forward earnings. That's a lot for a consumer stock. Uh, what do we have here? Earnings up 50% since the pandemic. 25% increase in revenues. Okay, that's fine. But the stock's up 65 percent. Now, the, 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 the analyst makes sense to me. I agree with them. Well, this is worth it just for those words alone out of Bob's mouth. Kate, give us some more color on Domino's here. Listen, I hear what Bob's saying, but Bob, the people want pizza. This was a really positive quarter. Rich Allison, the company's CEO, very, very positive on the call. He mentioned their higher average tickets, also the company's ability uh, to raise prices and not necessarily see the consumer pullback, something we also heard from Chipotle. He also talked, obviously, their digital and delivery ecosystem is very strong, but they're rolling out this car side delivery, getting orders out to people who order in advance in under two minutes, and Allison compared that to what you see in an average drive-through time in the QSR space. He said personally he's waited, you know, as long as five minutes. So that's something that they're rolling out. They're continuing this fortressing strategy of opening up more locations. Labor is, of course, an issue, but they've gotten rid of a lot of the things that delivery drivers used to have to do, like folding pizza boxes in stores, for example, to make sure that they're getting the pizza out the door more quickly. And this is a company and a stock that we know performs well in both uh, restricted opening environments and then fully open environments. And People haven't pulled back yet on pizza. They still seem to really have a lot of demand for it. Michael Yoshikami, your thoughts? Uh, well, I think uh, I agree with Bob that 
the fundamentals just aren't there right now. I mean, when you have a valuation for a pizza company at 32 that's being priced almost like a technology company, I think it's time to take profit. Um, you know, you, you might be in a position where uh, you could have future gains. I mean, certainly this drive thing that was just talked about uh, is a big deal. I know um, in California they've been test uh, testing out these sort of drive-through uh, pizza orders where you order and literally it's two or three minutes in the drive-through. So uh, that's a huge growth. And I know a lot of franchise owners and different fast food companies um, that uh, are very, very bullish on what's happening in fast food because of how impatient people are. But valuation matters. And when fundamentals are um, kind of this far out of whack, it's time but to Mike, take some money off the table. We have to move along. And I know your point about 38 times forward earnings, but they have proven that they are a technology company and that it's been paying off Massively. I mean, look at Chipotle. We were just talking about the other day. Exact same no, story. No. Yes, they've been investing Kelly. massive digitization. Kelly, the, Kelly. They're bearing the you, fruits you, of those investments. You, Kelly, you know what? You know what the sign <laughs> of a market bubble is? Is when Kelly starts trying to convince me that a pizza company <laughs> is a technology company. They are. That's the sign of a yes. bubble. Thank you. So yeah, okay. They have technology. Everybody Thank has you. technology in their business, but they are food. All right, let's move from food to uh, beverages and talk about what's going on with seltzer today. It's a really bad quarter for Boston beer. That was our mystery chart that we teased earlier. They blamed their top and bottom line miss on softer than expected demand for the hard seltzer truly. Shares plunging as much as 26% today. Goldman quick to downgrade the stock to neutral, saying that they were, quote, very surprised by the magnitude of this quarter's miss. Bob, did the analysts get this one right again? This is even easier than Domino's. It, the stock was $400 <laughs> prior to the pandemic. It, it's $1,300 right now, to up 200%. How much more beer can anybody else drink right now? It's 50 times forward. It was 35 before it was pricey. Now it's 50. Now, look, we know beer is a technology company. Of course, yes, we know that, too. <laughs> They're investing in technology. But come on, 50 times forward earnings? You're kidding yourself. And by the way, separately, the hard seltzer thing is topping out pretty clearly right now. I know. And I think that's overall a good thing for it's, it, this is a classic sign, Kate. I, uh, just as I've gotten on the bandwagon with the seltzer trend, it's totally over. I forget the name of the one I even like, but it, I don't think it was truly. <laughs> anyway, what is going on with the category? Too much proliferation, commoditization of what was once an innovative product. What's, what's the real story here? I think what you said is exactly it. I remember having a discussion on set. It must have been over a year ago now yes. at this point, just about how many hard seltzers there were and how many different products and names. Like, how much of this can people possibly drink? I never personally got on the train. Rosé all the way for me every summer. But <laughs> I know there were just so many options. And it sounds like Sam in and of itself rolled out too many different versions of it. And I think that's just the answer right there. It is, you know, what I, I was loading up for the party the other day, Michael, and, you know, at the, the local BevMax, whatever the thing is called. I mean, and it was seltzer everywhere. So there's tons of competition. Yeah, exactly. Why were the analysts so caught by, and I'm not trying to argue any technology here. This is clearly just a fad. But why were the analysts caught, <laughs> caught so flat-footed? Why, why was the company itself, I mean, shouldn't they have adjusted expectations? Uh, well, they're not going to adjust expectations when there still is tremendous demand in the seltzer category. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, th there's just massive competition. This is an example of something becoming so popular that everybody's in it. And once everybody's in it, you just reduce your ability to sell. And I think that's what's happened in this case. Um, there's just too much competition at this point. So once again, valuation and fundamentals matter. Does anyone know what the next Kate big thing is going to be yet? We just said time will tell. 
You're asking I have no me? Idea. Wrong person. Gin I have tonic. literally no idea. <laughs> Bob, did you say gin and tonic? Gin yeah, we're going tonic. back to gin and tonics. Let's go back to fundamentals. <laughs> I, I'm, of course, you know, gin and tonics is a is a technology play, of course, but uh, I like exactly. you know, going back to the old fashioned. Well, if you package it up these days uh, in a single serve portion, that might be exactly where this is heading. Uh, by the way, before we move on, you can catch Closing Bell's exclusive interview with Boston Beer CEO David Berwick today at 3 p.m. Eastern time. See if he can shed more light into what exactly is going on with uh, shifting consumer trends here. And moving from the names that analysts are cold on to the ones that they think are actually pretty hot right now, uh, there's a boost for Starbucks as Baird upgrades it to a buy on faster than expected consumer spending rebound. Shares are up nearly 3% today to another all-time high. Baird says Starbucks still has a reasonable valuation. It lags the broader market. Um, interestingly enough, coffee futures have spiked 18% this week on bad weather in Brazil, which threatens to exacerbate already tight supplies. And Kate, prices are up almost 50% so far this year. Um, Starbucks also facing a lot of shortages, but you know, that's what everyone's talking about these days. Yeah, they've definitely run into shortages here and there due to some supply chain issues. Obviously not a problem that's uh, specific to Starbucks. We're seeing it across the restaurant industry to the coffee prices. We talked to them about an ongoing drought issue uh, in Brazil last month, and they talked to us about locking you know, their coffee prices in well in advance and trying to keep it uh, lower than food away from home inflation. So that's something that they said they weren't really too concerned about. Uh, as far as consumer spending being up, people are getting back into their routines. I think uh, the note mentioned Starbucks beverage innovation also technology, not to bring it up again, but they've done a great job with mobile order and pay, uh, digital delivery, etc. And I think we're going to see these routines normalize, hopefully heading into the fall as more people head back to the office. But this is again a stock and a scenario that we've seen operate uh, in a more restricted environment and done quite a good job. Also, last quarter, they did mention their U.S. sales were back to pre-pandemic levels. So we'll see what they have to say this week uh, when earnings come out. Michael, I feel like Starbucks would be more of a Michael Yoshikami stock, you know, a big cap with pretty uh, solid, steady results. You know, I am curious if you have any concerns about their China exposure. Uh, you know, that's interesting you say that. Um, I, I do have some concerns about their China exposure. I mean, obviously, the problems that Luckin had in China with some of the drama regarding their sales numbers actually gave Starbucks an opportunity. But, you know, China is basically um, a slowing market. It's going to be uh, a slowing market regardless of what people are saying. I think China is going to uh, face some economic headwinds. So um, as for Starbucks, let me just let me just comment, if I could, uh, on this whole drive through phenomena. Mm. You know, the world has become so I want it right now. Everything has to be right now. And I think what you're going to see is companies that can really continue to penetrate the market with drive throughs are going to capture. They're going to capture market share. Starbucks is ramping this up uh, right near my house. They've basically taken, I think, it looks like a mobile home for, from what I can tell, put wood on the outside and they basically make a drive through And there's 15 people lined up every mm -hmm. single morning on drive through because they're too lazy to get out of their car drive through is what is really going to catapult a lot of these food companies. Forward. I love we're talking about drive through like it's a new thing. It's been around for like yeah. 40 years. But there's the same thing in my town. They have to put cones down the street because of the turning issue going in and out of the little Starbucks hut has gotten exactly. so bad. And there's exactly. so much traffic. It's, you know, there's still a lot of runway, uh, I guess, so to speak. All right. Finally, we want to talk about Monster Beverage, which is getting a boost over its city today, upgrading the company to outperform, setting a compelling valuation and a strong growth narrative. Monster is only up about 4% so far this year, but Get this. This is my Bapasani nugget for the day. It's the best performing S&P stock this century. It's appreciated over 100,000% since the year 2000. It's averaged a 21% annualized return, Bob, over the past decade. 
Right. So this is one of those, I call them analysts winging a prayer stories. You don't know what to whine about. So let's <laughs> whine about it's only a 4% this year. It was $70 pre-COVID. And now, it, what is it now, 96? I mean, w- look at that Look at that growth. And it's only up a few percent this year. Therefore, gee, it's underperforming its peers. Well, maybe there's a reason it's underperforming its peers, number one. But number two, a lot of the growth is already already there. So what are they saying? Oh, energy drinks are still going to grow this year. That seems like a pretty weak argument to make. This is a very tepid endorsement, I think, of a stock that's just been simply spectacular this year uh, in, in the last few years and is, is simply. It's pausing a little bit. It is, Michael, I'll, I'll end with you on this. There's an interesting nugget in here about how they could start to do a lot more share buybacks. And is that a sign that this company, after, yes, monster growth, is transitioning into a more mature business model phase? Uh, if they're doing share buybacks, that's absolutely what it is, because share buybacks are really an admission that they don't have the money to spend on anything else to innovate. Um, but th- there does get to be a point. I mean, at, at you expand, you expand your product, you expand how much you're in grocery shelves, you expand everywhere. And then at some point, you know, how much monster can people buy, right? So at some point, you got to really decide what are you going to do? You're going to go into new businesses or are you going to buy back shares? And I think that's if they're thinking of doing that, that clearly is a sign that the company, that the management thinks it's a slower growth story. And that's something for investors to pay attention. To. You know, Kate, I was going to joke about this. And then my producer made the joke as well. So me. What, you know, are there existing energy and alcohol beverages on the market? There's got to be, right? I mean, that feels like all of a sudden it could be an explosive new category. I actually have no idea, but that sounds like a weird uppers-downers combo that I wouldn't really be interested in trying. I actually had no idea that uh, energy drinks were still so popular, and I had no idea about the nugget that you shared about Monster until I got the research notes for this segment. So, I, I mean, they are clearly still popular people. I'm more of just a traditional coffee type of person, not a, an energy drink consumer. But there's something out there for everyone, maybe. Well, the real debate of the weekend is about uh, Domino's technology. But for now, we'll leave it there, everybody. Thank you oh so much for your time today. Bob Bassani, Kate Rogers, and Michael Yoshikami. Coming up after warning some Chevy Bolt owners not to leave their charging vehicles unattended, GM is now recalling some models. The details and what it means for their future on electric vehicles is next. Shares of General Motors are down today after they announced another recall of some Chevy Bolt models. Phil Lebeau is here with the details for us. Phil? Kelly, this is the second recall for the Chevy Bolt when it comes to dealing with battery fires or the potential for battery fires. There was one back in November. That did not fix the problem. So now there is a new recall. And this one will impact a little under 69,000 Chevy Bolts, 2017 to 2019 model years. About 51,000 of those are here in the U.S. The Bolt is going to be recalled as the owners are being told to do several things while they work with LG Chem to replace defective battery cells. So what do you have to do if you have a bolt? You got to limit the charge to 90%. You can't drain it to below 25%. You cannot charge it overnight. They don't want you to charge it overnight. They want you to have the vehicle parked outside. Oh, and by the way, they want you to charge it after every time you use the vehicle. So it really restricts the use of the Chevy Bolt for the Bolt owners. For General Motors, this is a problem that has been dogging the Bolt for some time. We talked about the fact that there was the recall back in November. This vehicle, this is a Bolt that belongs to a lawmaker in Vermont. It caught on fire after it was charging. And by the way, it had been fixed under the previous recall. So for General Motors, the focus now is to get these Bolts fixed. They're focusing on replacing 
defective battery cells. Those cells, by the way, Kelly, built by LG Chem, which is the battery maker. But for General Motors, this is one of those problems. They have got to get this fixed as quickly as possible because you're really restricting how the bolt can be used by the owners. Yeah, absolutely. Phil, thanks. We appreciate it. Phil LeBeau bringing us up to speed. Coming up, we all know the typical inflation indicators, gold, commodity prices. But have you heard about the dental one? We're going to dig into it and tell you what it's showing for prices and consumer confidence next. And remember, you can catch a show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. A major debate is raging about whether inflation has peaked or not. Investors are trying to read the tea leaves in commodities like gold and lumber and copper, but perhaps the dentist's office is where they should be looking. Here to explain is Vijay Sika, the founder and CEO of Sika Software. That's a cloud platform offering data-driven insights to non-physician medical practices. Vijay, it's good to have you. You've got data on inflation and consumer confidence for us. So let's start with inflation. What are you seeing? Um, thanks again for having me here, Kelly. Um, we have two indicators, and just to uh, before I just jump into the indicators, I wanted to let you know that we as a company are approximately a third of the serviceable United States dental market, and uh, we are an API platform. Uh, we have about 124 million patients de-identified information on our platform through those practices. And one of the things that we have started to see is there is two major indicators that we are tracking. One of them is actually dental inflation indicator, which is very similar to recall appointments. And now this, this is not the retail world where there's a product recall because the product is faulty. This is periodontal recare appointments that a patient makes uh, for a dental office. And it's about keeping the appointments. And the other indicator is related more to the consumer confidence. And right. we have seen very high correlations on those. So let's start with inflation. What is it telling you? It's actually uh, very interesting. We are seeing positive correlation between the um, the from the perspective of recall and recare appointments to the inflation indicator. And it's currently showing us that it is going to continue increasing, maybe not as strong as it has been going up. But we have been tracking this data for almost four years now, and we are starting to see a 0.7 and higher correlation coefficient on that. Okay. And that's telling you that maybe this is a little bit more transitory, some of these price pressures. Uh, what about on the consumer confidence side of things? And that's another interesting one because that's about making appointments. So when, when I have a job, when I have security, when I have insurance, then I'll make an appointment. And that we have even higher correlation uh, at 0.8 and above. And, and, you know, these things are both related to each other, but it's also for the first time we are starting to see that there's an inflation indicator which is going up and also the consumer confidence indicator which is going up. Although one interesting finding uh, that you have here is that people seem to be in kind of a rush to get these appointments done, that there's almost, it's telling you there's sort of like a fear lurking beneath the surface where, where they're thinking, you know what, I'm covered right now. I need these treatments. I want to go ahead and get it done just in case my job goes away or just in case the coverage changes. I mean, I thought that was very interesting, don't you? So overall, what the pandemic has done and the lockdowns and the Delta variants and the, you know, uh, Lambda variants and other things, what they have done is they have created this concept of this fear in the minds of the customer and, you know, particularly patients. And as a patient, what you want to do is to just take care of, you know, if there is any dental appointments, any needs. And this is tied to recare and recall appointments. The other thing that we are also starting to see is that uh, people, there is mass migration starting to happen. And... Uh, you know, people are moving. And uh, before you move, you know, you want to make sure your house is all cleaned up. Just like that, you want to make sure you visit your dentist, True. you get your teeth cleaned. 
Yeah. And that gives you a sense as well that there's a shift in the population. So on so many different fronts, I know you guys can also use this data to help with life insurance and other health issues. And uh, there's so much that can be gleaned here. Vijay, thanks for sharing it with us. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Vijay Sika is the uh, founder and CEO of Sika Software. Still ahead, two more blue states are passing laws that allow taxpayers creative workarounds to avoid the salt tax. We'll have the full details right after this. Welcome back. California and New York are the latest states to pass laws allowing ways to avoid the salt cap, one that could benefit high earners. Robert Frank is here now with all the details. Robert? Well, Kelly, talks over repealing salt in Washington. They continue to drag on, but at least 16 states, they're not waiting. They have passed a creative workaround. So here's how it works. The salt cap only applies to individuals, not businesses. So taxpayers who have income from pass-throughs can route their taxes and deductions through their partnerships or the S-Corps. The pass-throughs pay the state taxes. The pass-through then collects the taxes from the owner, and the state gives the owner a credit for the full amount on their personal taxes. The states win since they collect the revenue. The taxpayer wins since they avoid that $10,000 cap. The federal government is likely to lose tens of billions a year from those larger deductions, and wage earners, well, they don't get any benefit. The biggest beneficiaries here will be super high earners who have some pass-through income. So we're talking about hedge fund managers, private equity partners, real estate investors, financial traders, and owners of small businesses. So again, this, is, this could sort of decrease that pressure on DC to repeal SALT. We'll see where it all goes, Kelly. Well, it's super hypocritical as well, especially if it helps the people who aren't just salaried high earners, but the kinds of high earners that you mentioned. Putting that all to the side, do you expect uh, there to be a change actually in how people earn their income if this passes and they say, we want the same advantages? Well, there was, remember when this change first took effect where you could deduct 20% of your income in 2017 as a result of that tax change, we thought we would see a huge number of people from, go from salary to pass-throughs and contract workers. We didn't see that many. So I, don't, I think this will be similar. If you're not a pass-through already, you're probably not going to do it based on this. Because remember, SALT, salt sort of expires in 2025 anyway. So people may just wait for that rather than change everything about the way they work and how they earn their income. And it feels to me like it's getting more desperate, Robert, because the population is leaving these states. Absolutely. We've seen that. You know, we hear that the uh, news today, Disney moving those jobs to Florida, that migration that you just talked about uh, on Dennis. You know, we're seeing that from New York to Florida. And, and I think you're right. States needed to do something. This solves it, at least a Band-Aid approach for now. And New Jersey accountants are advising people to move to Tennessee. That's another piece making the rounds today. So that's why all of these states as well are trying to do things to keep those populations in place. Robert, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Robert Frank with the latest on the salt front. That does it for The Exchange today. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.